Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 44, Why We Need the Medicare for All Act. My guest, Stephanie Kang, is the Health Policy Fellow for Congresswoman Pramilia Jayapal. Representative Jayapal introduced H.R. 1384, the Medicare for All Act of 2019, and Ms. Kang assisted in finalizing that bill. Ms. Kang has an MS in Global Health from Northwestern University and is a third-year Doctor of Public Health candidate at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Her professional background includes drug development for neurodegenerative diseases, management of a health organization in Kenya, and coordination for clinical research and quality improvement at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Additionally, she has worked on access to health care projects in India, Mexico, and at the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria. Stephanie Kang, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. I've heard so many of your episodes, and you've had a lot of my friends and colleagues on, and so I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. So, could you please describe your role in writing the Medicare for All Act of 2019, H.R. 1384? Sure. Uh, it was a surprise to me, to be honest, that I was going to be given any sort of role in helping to prepare and introduce that legislation. Um, I had arrived in February 2019, basically a few weeks before the bill was introduced. By then, most of the provisions had been written, but in that last final week, it was really about reviewing the text and um, finalizing some of the different provisions that we had discussed with the various groups that we had worked with, um, and then preparing the bill for the launch. And why do you think that Representative Jayapal thought it necessary to write such a bill? Yeah, I mean, the state of our healthcare system um, is just clearly only working for the invested interests um, that it serves and not for the people. And every other industrialized country in the world has figured out how to provide coverage in an efficient way for everyone in their country. And yet the U.S., I mean, we, we have a long history um, and reasons why we don't have a universal health care system in this country. But the idea of single payer has been around for a long time, but has faced a lot of political barriers. Um, similarly to the you know backlash that we saw to Medicare for All, even throughout the 2020 Democratic presidential debate. And so I think Congressman Jayapal, she felt really compelled to make sure that we introduced a Medicare for All bill that was, quote unquote, battle ready. Uh, we wanted to expand on provisions that had been provided before in previous iterations, such as H.R. 676, um, that was introduced by Representative John Conyers. Um, but that bill was a 30-page outline. It was sort of this like uh, dream outline of what a national health insurance single-payer policy would look like. But 30 pages 
obviously there's just not a sufficient enough detail to really be able to have a deep policy conversation. And so with that mindset, she wanted to make sure that we had a really comprehensive proposal, but that we also did it with our grassroots partners who have been really key in championing Medicare for all. Um, and so through that, we had a working table of various groups from nurses, doctors, disability rights groups, and others um, who collaborated with us and helped us write the Medicare for All Act of 2019. Um, and just to give like a quick summary of the purpose of this bill, it's not just about providing universal coverage, not just about giving people some level of coverage or benefits. Medicare for All is about guaranteeing a national plan for everyone that would have comprehensive set of benefits. So, you know, primary care, mental health, um, any preventive care that you need, dental, vision, hearing, reproductive health and long-term care, everything that a person needs to live and have a dignified life. Um, and then we provide that with no financial barriers, right? So this is really key because now, as we're seeing right now, the affordability of our system is crippling families across the country. Um, and so we wanted to ensure that at point of service, there's no cost. So that means no premiums, no uh, co-pays or deductibles that are going to stop you from receiving the care that you need. Um, and then it also brings in other aspects of the healthcare system by reforming drug pricing, by allowing you know, the federal government to finally negotiate prices. Um, and other aspects that really help to coordinate a single national health plan that guarantees everyone an equitable level of coverage. Well, the question that a lot of people have is, why couldn't you do that with incremental reforms to our current health care system? Sure. I mean, I think that the last 30 years is proof, or 50 years really, is proof as to why incremental reforms don't work. Um, you know, we've seen that the Democrat Party has really centered their health reforms on small little changes, um, adding people here, adding a plan here. Um, but what that's done is created this fragmented patchwork of systems that are not working in coordination with each other and are quite dysfunctional from the patient's perspective in terms of guaranteeing, you know, a certain level of coverage. And so we can keep trying to tweak the system, but one, that doesn't do anything to contain the costs of our incredibly expensive system. Um, so we spend 18% of our GDP, which is almost $4 trillion a year, on a health system that leaves 30 million people out, leaves another 40 million underinsured, and this is all before COVID, uh, and achieves some of the worst public health outcomes out of any industrialized nation. And so when we think about incremental reforms, I understand why there's a leaning towards that, right? People want something that is, quote unquote, politically viable. They want something that they feel like can pass because they know that the different stakeholders in our healthcare system, whether it's doctors and hospitals and private insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, they've been very good at creating mass opposition against any level of health reform. And people want to try to avoid that fight. But because of that, again, we haven't been able to create um, not just having coverage for everyone, but we have some of the greatest disparities based on race and income and zip code and employment status because of our healthcare system and because it continues to tie healthcare to employment. So 
I think one of the key parts to that is, you know, all of the other incremental plans that are out there, whether they're various types of public options or, you know, lowering the age a little bit for Medicare to buy in, all of those plans keep healthcare tied to employment. And every other country a long time ago recognized that you cannot tie something as a basic need like healthcare to something as transient as employment. And I think COVID-19 has really made the case clear that when you lose your job, you lose your healthcare. And that is not providing the health security that people need. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask, you brought up COVID-19. And how do you think our current health care system has hindered the response to COVID-19? Sure. Um, I think about this in a few different ways. Um, one is the simple fact that the, you know, what I had described earlier in terms of the lack of health security is a huge detriment to any sort of public health response, right? We need people to, one, if they have any sort of COVID-19 symptoms, to not hesitate to seek care if they need care. Um, but I think a recent Gallup poll found that one in seven would refuse to go to the doctor even if they had COVID-19 symptoms because of the fear of cost, right? That's outrageous. That simply doesn't happen in other countries. Beyond just, you know, having coverage for everyone during a pandemic, we're really talking about having a lack of coordination across our medical centers, across our health systems in this country. And the fact that we still don't have a national testing strategy, the fact that we still don't have a national contact tracing strategy or a streamlined way to have data, right, the basic data that you would need to provide us a real pandemic response doesn't exist here because our system is so fragmented. I mean, you see this from something as simple as, let's say you have a doctor's visit um, with someone in one office, and then, you know, you have to, for your primary care visit, and then you have to go see a specialist for, who knows, like maybe your kidneys. Chances are you're going to have to fill out the same paperwork, and they're not talking to each other, right? There's no system connecting the two. And this doesn't happen in single-payer countries. And other single pair countries, like, you know, my family's in South Korea, um, Canada, Australia, um, Taiwan. I mean, not only are they seeing that they have significantly less cases and deaths per capita. So from Taiwan to Australia, it's about zero to perhaps like 19 cases per capita, while we're facing 197 cases per capita. And so our, our fragmented multi-payer, voluntary, employment-based system has left so many people vulnerable during a time where healthcare is needed the most and has left us with the inability to provide an actual pandemic response. You bring up some important points, and one of them, as you mentioned, was the sharing of data. And as you said, that was a problem even before COVID. But the thing I'd like to know, and you mentioned this to some degree, what reforms do you think are most important? You mentioned covering everybody. You mentioned people being able to get care without costs. Are there any other reforms that you think are important that Medicare for All would enable? Sure. I think it's a couple things. I mean, one... I really want to drive the point home that this is not just about providing coverage for everyone. 
this is about reforming the way that people receive healthcare, um, and also in terms of making sure that those costs are contained. Right. So single-payer countries have shown that you know healthcare costs are going up for everyone across the world, but they're going up much faster in the U.S. and it's taking up much more of our GDP on a much faster rate. So, for example, in Taiwan, you're seeing that you know they have increased a little bit over their um, the last 10 years in terms of how much they spend in healthcare, but they spend six percent of their GDP and it's gone up. 6.2% in the last two years. I mean, sorry, up to 6.2% in the last two years. So that's 0.2% compared to ours, which has gone up nearly 5% in the last 10 years um, and, and up to 18% of our GDP. And so when we think about this, we can't just think of providing care for everyone. And this goes again to that point of why incremental reforms don't work. We have to think about cost containment. We have to think about it the way that our hospitals are financed. And we're seeing this in COVID-19 too. I mean, you know, we're having hospitals that are shutting down because they don't have the revenue they need or the ability to stay open in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, it really is nonsense that something like that is happening. And so a Medicare for All system, the way that that works is that you provide the revenue prospectively, right? So hospitals have a guaranteed revenue. Everyone has coverage, so they're not going to have patients who are uncompensated or uninsured. And this is really going to be a boost to our not only providing insurance to everyone, but also to our hospitals who really need to make sure that they have the revenue to be able to operate at maximum capacity at all times. The other part is drug pricing. I mean, I think that right now what we're seeing is that Medicare and Medicaid in the U.S. currently is the largest drug purchaser in the world. And yet Medicare is not allowed to negotiate drug prices. Because, yeah. Right. I mean, the reason why they're not allowed to negotiate drug prices is because the pharmaceutical companies successfully lobbied um, the Medicare Modernization Act in 2003 and ensured that basically there was a, a clause put in that prohibits the federal government from negotiating drug prices. This simply doesn't happen in other countries in the world. And so we want to be thinking, too, about how do we build up that negotiation power? Right. And how do you have that so that you can then guarantee that, you know, the U.S. is not paying two times more for drugs on average at like it currently is. Um, and the best way to do that is to put people into a single system and so that you have a large buying and negotiating power. One of the things that you mentioned, of course, is cost. And we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world, as you mentioned, 18 percent of GDP. But the other thing that you also mention is that our health outcomes are not as good. Do you think that Medicare for All will enable us to have better health outcomes? Certainly. Um, I think that it's not just about making sure that people have the care they need when they're sick, but being, being able to seek care before they even get sick, right? I think that right now we have what we call a sickness system, where people wait until they're so sick that they have to go to the doctor. And this is much more expensive for the system. You know, I, I was just listening to a story from a doctor who saw a patient for a typical UTI, right? A woman came into the ER, had a UTI. All she needed was antibiotics. Um, but the insurance company she had denied her antibiotics, and so she couldn't afford them because it was going to be $300 out of pocket. 
few days later, she came back to that ER and now she had developed sepsis and we needed to be admitted into the ICU. And so our current healthcare system prohibits people from getting the basic needs that they need in healthcare, but then we still have to treat that person eventually and that person becomes much more sick and much more expensive to the system. So that's just one example as to why a U.S. single-payer Medicare for All system would certainly improve outcomes because people could prevent themselves from getting sick. But also, you know, when I when we think about Medicare for All, we're thinking about this in terms of a comprehensive spectrum of health. What does it mean to be a healthy person? So this isn't really just about physical health. This is also about mental health and making sure that people have access to mental providers. Right now, a significant proportion, I think it's about 40% of mental health providers don't even accept any type of private insurance. And so that's just nuts, right? What, what we need is to make sure that people have the doctors that they need, that they're all within the network, right? We don't having to figure out which doctor is in the network, which one takes your insurance or not. It should just be understood and guaranteed. There's no confusion there. And that when you need that kind of doctor, whether it's a mental health specialist or a neurosurgeon or someone else, you're going to be able to access that doctor. So all of those things in terms of being able to guarantee yourself that care automatically enables you to be a healthier person. And one of the things is our current system makes it very hard to get mental health services. And we're really doing that poorly. I had a previous podcast about that. And even I was surprised about how bad it is. So that's an important point. One of the things, though, I wonder is the bill did not address the financing of Medicare for All. Why is that? And how do you think the financing needs to happen? I think that it's not always that a pay-for provision is included. Uh, you know, even in 676, it had listed a couple types of revenues, but it was quite vague in terms of what actual pay-fors would be there or how you would finance Medicare for All. But also, I mean, there hasn't been like an exact analysis of HR 1384 in terms of exactly what it costs. Um, but we do have several studies out there that have estimated what a single-payer Medicare for All-like system would cost the country. And so for us, it's really clear that all the evidence points to the fact that a single-payer system like Medicare for All would cost less than what we currently pay now and would cover everyone and produce significantly better health outcomes. And so when we're thinking about financing, there's a few different ways to address this. I mean, right now, households are bearing a huge brunt of the cost. Um, and that's through private insurance premiums and out-of-pocket costs because they have to reach their deductible, they have to reach their out-of-pocket maximum. And so instead of paying into a private insurance plan that has limited coverage, a restrictive network, instead of paying that premium to the private insurance company, you would pay that premium into the federal government into this Medicare for All program, which would guarantee you significantly more benefits. So, you know, I think the main point is all the money is there that would be necessary to fund a Medicare for All system. What it requires is, is that the money that we're currently spending be shifted from private to public. And one of the things about costs, it amazes me that 
the employer or the employee combined will pay over $20,000 a year for health insurance. And then if the employee needs to go to the doctor, or even in marketplace policies, you still need to pay more to get health insurance. You're not covered. Whereas in other countries, like $20,000 would cover, when you look at per capita cost, would cover anywhere from, I'd say, roughly three to five people in other systems. That just blows my mind. One of the things... Definitely. To... Yeah, go okay. ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, reiterating your point and just saying that this is a burden across all businesses, but especially our small businesses. Um, and, and the fact that they have to carry on so much of the contribution for a family plan that you just described can be like up to $20,000. You know, these plans are deteriorating in their quality in terms of what benefits they provide, et cetera. Um, but the prices are going up. And as the prices go up, employers are finding themselves having to shift more of that contribution onto the individual. And so both sides are being screwed here in terms of the employer-based system. Um, but really, you know, also, again, the fact that the only way to maintain this is to either pay, if say you lost your job, but you have this employer plan and you want to keep your doctor or your plan, you'd have to pay into COBRA which is another just extremely expensive system that keeps you connected to a plan that has high deductibles, that doesn't provide comprehensive benefits. So it's just really interesting to me. I mean, we have all of these systems put into place, but we don't have one that just guarantees that you're going to have health care when you need it. It's very strange to me. I'd like to come back to a point you made earlier in that most studies have said that Medicare for All will cost less and provide better coverage. And, of course, one of the big lies is that Medicare for All will cost more and make coverage worse, which is simply not true. But I'd like to know if you think there are other significant lies that have been spread about Medicare for All. Sure. I think that one uh, that I think of is that this is a government-run, government-controlled healthcare system. Um, you know, Medicare for All doesn't do anything in terms of changing if your provider is a private or public or nonprofit provider, right? What it maintains a private delivery care system. What it changes is just the way that it's financed, right? So this is a government-financed insurance system that just provides the benefits that everyone needs. So again, this isn't like perhaps the UK, which still has a much better system than we do, but the difference is that the UK also has the NHS, which is a public provided providers system, while Medicare for All would be private. Uh, I think the other myth I hear all the time is just, you know, really trying to hark in on the American values of freedom and choice, um, which I understand they're important. To American culture. But, you know, especially during COVID-19, I mean, no one is trying to make the claim anymore that the employer provider system provides so much choice, right? So like not only do you not have choice if you've lost your job, thus you've lost your health insurance, but even if you had employer-sponsored insurance, a Commonwealth Fund report that came out a couple of weeks ago found that 25% of those employer plans are considered to be underinsured. And so you don't have choice even when you have the plan. And so, you know, Medicare for All is really about 
expanding the choice, choice that matters to people, right? Because I had mentioned there's not going to be these little mini networks of doctors where you have to go online and find out which doctor takes your insurance. All doctors will be in the network. So you have really more choice than you do in our current system. I think that's an important point, that with Medicare for All, you can choose any doctor or hospital. And that gives you more choice than almost any other insurance plan that I'm aware of. And you can go across states, which can be important. I would also say that people are still claiming that Medicare for All limits choice and that current health care plans provide more choice because I have seen that argument still being made over and over. So I think it's going to keep popping up. One other thing that I would like to ask is, what do you think needs to happen so that we can pass Medicare for All? So to pass Medicare for All, I truly believe that our system is headed there no matter what. I mean, as our system stays the way it is and continues to fail us, the people will demand that we provide a bold, real solution to our healthcare system. That being said, there are still significant barriers in our way so far. And so one, we would absolutely need to have substantial campaign finance reform. We would have to get the money out of politics, right? We would have to um, be able to ensure that just because an industry in healthcare is not able to lobby and invest millions of dollars into swaying a member on a powerful committee to, you know, blocking the health reform uh, attempt. Um, and so that's number one. Number two would be that we have a long way to go still in terms of electing progressive politicians up and down the ballot. And so this doesn't just mean our president. We have to equip whichever president has Medicare for All on the top of their platform with also a chamber, both chambers of Congress having a significant proportion of progressive members. So we need to have the Democrats as united as possible. Um, but we would also, up and down the ballot too, would need to have progressive members infiltrating these spaces as much as possible. People who have had a little experience, people who understand why we need Medicare for all and, and won't shy away from it once they're in office. And so um, I also think that we have to be thinking about in terms of political barriers is really building up the momentum and understanding of Medicare for All. And so it's undeniable that Medicare for All became a top um, top uh, debated topic in the 2020 Democratic presidential primary. I mean, it really single payer received unprecedented attention throughout last year. Um, but our Medicare for All champion didn't win. And a huge part of this still this fear, this fear of, you know, going beyond incrementalism, this fear among people that can be easily exacerbated by industry, by politicians who are against Medicare for All, around freedom and choice, around government control. And so the movement has to do what it can to reach out to all of these different communities. We have to go beyond our current network. We have to go beyond the little bubbles that we talk about Medicare for All in. And we have to include these people in the conversation. And sometimes I think it's not about necessarily even saying, do you believe in Medicare for All? It's about having that healthcare discussion. Almost every person I know 
has either a personal healthcare story or has a loved one that has had some sort of horror story experience in the healthcare system. And when you have that conversation and you ground that conversation in that shared human experience, I think that we're going to be able to bring a lot of people into the movement. The last thing I'll say is COVID-19 has been a really interesting experience for Medicare for All in the sense that, of course, there are also several other crises happening at the same time, not just COVID-19. But COVID-19 has made the case very clear for a lot of people who I think weren't necessarily there before. And the recent poll actually showed that 46% of Republicans now support a Medicare for All system. I think that's an astounding number, right? It's almost 90% of Democrats, 59% of independents, 46% of Republicans. That's incredible, right? It's sad that it took a pandemic, but that's sort of the, you know, no one can escape what is happening to us right now. And so the case will be made clear, but now we just have to make sure that when that case is made, that support is being built, that we maintain that support, and that we provide our political champions with the public will to ensure something like this moves forward. Well, I think that's very good. And I think the advice about connecting with people on health care is excellent. And I think that will really help us get Medicare for all passed. Before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? Sure. Um, something I'd like to talk about with Medicare for All is really understanding that this is not just a health policy. Right? This is about building a shared responsibility, a shared understanding, a social contract in our country that doesn't currently exist. You know, we ended up where we are right now with uh, deteriorating democracy, the threat of a, a rising autocracy, um, and with a healthcare system that is one of the most inequitable systems, it is the most inequitable healthcare system amongst the industrialized countries. And all of these things happen because we lost our way in terms of what it meant to be a society here. And so something I like just want to think about a lot when we talk about Medicare for All is really understanding what we mean when we say healthcare is a human right. What we say when we mean when it, when we say that health is key to being able to have a thriving society. And so we're going to go through a huge political storm in the next couple of weeks, in the next month. But when we get out of that, what is the social contract that we're going to rewrite? And how are we then going to be able to translate? all of that anguish and everything that we've experienced into bringing forth proposals like Medicare for All and being able to change that narrative that, that these things are politically impossible, that these things are too too ambitious, too disruptive. You know, we have to make that case really clear. A health reform plan has never had the grassroots momentum that Medicare for All does now. That's the tool that is unique at this particular moment. And so that has to be exercised wielded and grown. Well, there's a lot that could be discussed about the social contract. And at some point, that'd be an interesting discussion. But for now, what I want to say is, Stephanie, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. 
Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.